Hey folks, and tonight's episode is brought to you by YesPleaseVintage.com. If you're in the States and a fan of vintage and upcycled housewares and clothing, give YesPleaseVintage.com a check for clothing, jewelry, homeware, and some really awesome finds. So go check them out now at YesPleaseVintage.com. And currently, if you spend over $60, you get free shipping on all orders. Hello and welcome to episode 59 of the Asian Cinema Film Club. I'm your host as always, Edward Jones, and joining me of course is the Professor Mr. Stephen Palmer. Hello everybody, hello Edward. Uh, tonight we go rather classy as we look at a film regularly regarded as one of the greatest p- pieces of Japanese cinema ever made, as we look at Tokyo Story from 1953. But before we obviously get into that, it's time to ask what you've been watching, and Stephen, before we uh, get into things, so say, Stephen, what have you been watching? <laughs> Um, well, I've actually have watched something. Um, I got <laughs> well for this show it is. <laughs> um, I got, so um, I guess for the last three years I've been going on and on about um, Train to Busan, which I think you finally saw a few weeks ago. Yes. Um, probably missed the wave and also spoken highly about its prequel, um, Soul Station. Um, I finally got around to seeing Peninsula because it got released here in the UK on DVD and Blu-ray last week, and um, so I had that delivered to me. And I've got to admit, I was a little um, trepidatious because the reviews I had seen were a mix of fair to poor. <laughs> um, but you know, I'm a big fan of Young Sang Ho's work. I was hoping there would be at least something in there, and actually, I really rather enjoyed it. Um, if you, however, there's going to be a proviso here. If we if we use a another horror film, uh, zombie film scale of say, Train to Busan being the equivalent of, uh, what's the Romero film set in the shopping mall? Oh, Dawn, uh, Dawn, Dawn of the, of the Dead. Dead. Dawn of the Dead. If we say Train to Busan is Dawn of the Dead, this film's more like Land of the Dead. Um, it's 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 not a sequel. It's just another story set in this universe that's been set up with the previous two films. Um, it's set four years after the end of Train to Busan, although it starts off sort of during the the latter latter moments of that film, um, where we have a soldier, Korean soldier, played by um, Gang Dong Won, who basically escapes with his. Um, his brother and his sister, sister-in-law. I think it's brother and sister-in-law, or is it his sister and brother-in-law? Doesn't matter. Some relatives and their young child onto a boat on its way to um, Hong Kong. On the boat, a, um, a, a an outbreak breaks out, as outbreaks are want to do, leaving his sister and and uh, the, her son dead. Just it's just him and his brother-in-law left. Um, they then spend four years in Hong Kong as sort of second second rate citizens, second class citizens. Um, yeah, people from Korea aren't very uh, viewed very highly, and Korea in this time, now known as the Pen- Peninsula, has been completely shut off, shut off, and quarantined from the rest of the world. So we don't, no one really knows what's been going on in South Korea. Um, there is some talk on a TV, and a really badly acted western tv show that sort of mentions that maybe north korea is um is is the only safe place on the korean peninsula but that doesn't really play into anything um and like i say four years later they've fallen onto hard times they're involved in um some sort of japanese triad crap going down and they have an opportunity along with two other people to go back into the peninsula and basically rescue a lorry full of money so it starts off like a heist movie i guess um in the uh in in the sort of the zombie overtaken south korea so rather than a a train to busan this is more like a truck to Incheon. um it's 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 um however it's not a tenth as good as Train to Busan. So Train to Busan had this sense of a zombie movie in a slightly different place, in this compact, 
environs mostly of a train or a railway station and there was always a sense of both space being compressed and of forward movement in the film um this film's got a ton of ideas and again it really reminds me of land of the dead um where yes we've got this heist movie going on but that soon gets put aside when we meet a a, a militia outfit that have gone a bit well, the way all militia outfits go in these kind of films, you know, thinking of um, 28 Days Later, I'm thinking of um, a d- Day of the Dead, even, you know, the, the the military sort of in its all-male world sort of turns in on itself. And, and guess what they do, Elwood? Yes, they have normal people versus zombie battles in the Coliseum. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that's a shade of Walking Dead as well. There. But, you know, we, we've seen all these things before in Western zombie films. Um, at the same time, um, the uh, the character played by uh, Gang Dong Won um, meets another family who've been basically surviving because the the zombies in this movie are um you know they're not very active at night they're they're very um reacted to sound and light so they've been able to sort of carve out a world for themselves um so basically there's a there's a there's a grandfather a woman and her two daughters and the woman of course is someone that we met at the very beginning of the film where um gang dong wan's character didn't take her onto the boat so there's a he realizes straight away and there's a ton of guilt and what we actually end up getting is a bit of an action film where this this sort of extended family and this ex-soldier are trying to escape both from the military and from the peninsula itself um and yeah it it is it's, it's playing a lot of tropes and zombie film ideas that we've seen before but it's really entertaining. It's not that bad at all. It's you know, it's it's not original, but it's really enjoyable. Um, I would say some of the CGI is a bit naff. Yeah. Um, and and really, what's interesting is how little play the zombies have. Um, it, it, they, they 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 turn up when necessary, but they're not integral to the film. It could have been any kind of post-apocalyptic film. It's probably got more in common with uh, no Escape from New York than it has um, zombie films, apart from one 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 nice little bit. Um, it doesn't have anything to say about society. Like Train to Busan had all this wonderful sort of social commentary going on about the haves and the have-nots. Which of course is echoing things that you know we we, we talked about in Snowpiercer. Um, there's nothing like that going on. It's 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 much more standard. But it, for for what it is, it's really good. You know, I'd really recommend it. Um, it's just not fantastically great. So yeah, that's what I've been watching. Okay, I've yet to watch uh, Peninsula. Um, I mean, but the amount of time it took me to watch Train to Busan, I'm not sure if it's going to be any time soon that uh, I'll be getting around <laughs> yeah. to it, especially because I've been hearing such mixed reports, so it's kind of good to hear you uh, get yeah. that sort of balancing report there. I definitely what got... I, what I, I'm sorry, I was just going to say, what I would say is it's got a really great cast. Okay. Um, Gang Dong Won, I've mentioned him a few times, uh, I'd say five or six years ago, he was like the latest big star of um, Korean film. Um, I'm trying to think of films that people might have seen him in. Um, so he he was in um, Junwoochi, the Taoist Wizard, which had come under various names that got released over here. Um, he was in Secret Union. He was in um, uh, God, Violent Prosecutor. You know, he's uh, 1987 when Day Comes, which is another good film from mm-hmm. a couple of years ago. Um, yeah, he's he's been he, he's 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 a real star, but. He's never quite broken through like a Kang Song Ho who he starred against in um, Secret Union. So I've been keeping an eye on him. And of course, he also appears in one of my favourite films of all time, Duelist, which one day we'll get to when when I'm allowed another art house pick again. Um, but yeah, he's really good. And the female, the lead female is Lee Jong Hyun, who's... Um, well, historically, she's a, sort of one of these EDM pop stars. Not, not quite K-pop, but really sort of important dance music pop star but who's who's taken a turn for acting um and she was in a fantastic film i watched a few years ago um oh, what was it called uh, uh alice and ernest land 
which is one of my favourite films. But yeah, basically, really, really strong cast, which really helps. And both both these films have have been really helped by a really strong A list cast, which which just elevates them a bit. So sorry, I interrupted you there. You were going to no, <laughs> no, you're never going to watch the film. Just going to agree with yourself. I really got from the trailer that uh, Escape from New York vibe from mm. it um again it's just another zombie movie i think when it comes to zombie movies you kind of want to see the life after the sort of apocalypse uh rather than just you know another siege movie so it's kind of interesting the fact that you're saying it's sort of like a heist movie and a zombie movie combined there that's kind of a lot more a bit more interesting than the masses of you know straight to dvd video um zombie movies that we got coming out still now so yeah, that we'll have coming out forevermore. Yeah, I, I think some of the reviewers have been very harsh on it. It's, it's, and I, I admit I fell into that. I was really thinking, mm, if it wasn't quite cheap, I wouldn't have bothered. Yeah. But, um, you know, committed to the cause. I hope, um, I hope director Yon doesn't make another film in this universe, but I wouldn't be adverse to seeing other people make films in this universe that makes sense um why it's called train to Busan train to busan presents peninsula in the uk is <clears throat> must be the world's most awkward title ever so i'm just going to call it peninsula but <laughs> it's a bit weird that you but, say that but we also got what is it the witch part one um over here, over here which just causes this whole bunch of other confusion because you've got the other film called the witch and it's yeah, some sometimes the the higher up at film studios really or distribution companies are really dumb. <laughs> That's just, I know they wanted to tie it into Train to Busan. I don't know. It's very important. This is not Train to Busan two. Um, uh, just trying to think. I guess there are other examples, other sort of genre films that have had multiple sequels or films just 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 set in that universe and i kind of i kind of like that you know there's there's an, here's an apocalyptic career um let, let's try and do something with it and uh yeah i thought it was okay okay um we're certainly on the next um coming up well we're obviously talking about the witch part one the subversion by park Hoon jong uh from 2018 that's actually getting a tv showing um which will have happened by the time that you've obviously had this one. So maybe we'll be talking about that in a future episode. Um, but um, is there been anything else on your list at all? At all? God, God, to be honest, that, 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 that's been it. And I was very proud of myself for doing that. What about yourself? Uh, for myself, got a couple. Uh, first off, we've got the second of the Dragon Ball Z Super movies um, in Dragon Ball Z Resurrection of F, uh, which is basically another of the arcs condensed down into movie format and given an animation upgrade and a few scenes here and there changed. And it's uh, again a really fun entry if you've not up to speed on the, the Dragon Ball Z stuff, it's still really accessible. Uh, this one seeing the resurrection of Frieza, who's one of the big villains from the original Dragon Ball Z series, he's a uh, kind of like an android uh, dictator who's uh, got ideas about a uh, global sort of conquest and in the original Dragon Ball Z he's basically has the already got like the record for like the longest fight scene in anime history as it goes on for like multiple episodes the fight scene between Goku and Frieza um, and ends it with him being basically diced to bits and sent down to a uh, this world's vision of hell where he's basically wrapped in a cocoon and subjected to happy fluffy animals that uh, parade past him which of course being evil sends him insane uh so he's read the dragon balls and continues his usual antics um the whole premise is basically just to see a, a revolved level freezer which in this case is gold freezer and anyone who's obviously familiar with how Dragon Ball Z works, it's all about upping the levels. So, um, with obviously Goku and Vegeta, it's uh, they're doing the um, old god level at this point. So, yeah, it's uh, even if you've seen like this this art before, and if you've been watching the Dragon Ball Z Super series, it's still a lot of fun to watch, and it's uh, it's fun just also seeing the scenes being given like the the 
boost in animation turns because obviously the bunny put behind a feature compared to a TV series. So uh, that's a lot of fun. And on a similar track, I also checked out Fearless Warriors. Uh, this is a fun bit of Kung Fu weird for you, Stephen. Uh, so it's from 1971. Um, this one really came out sort of uh, at the height of Bruce Lee's sort of fame. Where basically, you know, distributors would like pick up anything from Hong Kong. This one in particular is from Taiwan, and they would just like basically dub and push them out to the US market, especially in like the grindhouse theaters. Uh, this one's just fantastic, as I said, because it's just a whole lot of kung fu weirds. You've got a bunch of martial arts uh, masters assembled by this uh, evil guy named uh, Tope, who's basically assembled his own Cobra Command of Kung Fu Misfits, uh, all welding fantastical weapons. So you've got a guy that's got uh, throwing swords. We've got uh, one who's got a couple of uh, like t tiger claws, it seems. Um, we've got the Thunder Whip and just all this really sort of fantastical stuff, all in all, which just leads to just a really generally fun time. Um, of course, being as is pretty typical for all these sort of kung fu sort of weird moves, it uh, features a lot of teleport foo, um, as well as you know just the use of fantastic weapons. Totally random plot elements include my favorite one, where what the bad guy beats up uh, one of my heroes on a cliff and says, "I've got plans for you," and then basically kicks him off a cliff. Only for him to then somehow come back as this bionic kung fu hero. Uh, when he's mysteriously rescued from a map by a master character who's made no appearance in the film whatsoever and the film just basically goes completely off the rails at that point but you know it's a brief 82 minutes and very little's wasted here it's just a lot of really good fighting and little on character development but if you were looking for action and fantastical weaponry it's a good time and all and you can find it on amazon and the church of Ube. so uh what, what's what's, what's it's it called, called again Fe fearless fighters Okay. So, one for your Amazon watch pile, no doubt. Indeed. You know, just a little hangover TV on a Sunday morning sort of thing. You'd know about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now I've basically destroyed my soul, underestimating how strong a double punk is. Um, yes, prior to coming on the air tonight, um, myself and Stephen had a discussion over... My drinking habits, because I'm currently working all the way through the brew dog Advent Canada, and perhaps may have underestimated how strong one of said brews was. So, uh, it certainly made watching no, Tokyo no, Story no, no a, little, <laughs> a little more different. <laughs> no sympathy here. I know. Oh, lots, lots of sympathy. So, yeah, it's as I said, it's. Um, that's that's about about it. Obviously, we've got as we're recording this, we're going into the festive break, so hopefully, going to be crossing some more bits and pieces off the watch pile and uh, tr trying to w hopefully watch a few more bits and pieces. Because uh, let's face it, when we look at the movie channels, there's nothing on because nothing's been released this year. And and um, it's going to be interesting to see things moving forward with, with some of the announcements that have come. I know out where how. We're going to be. How many streaming services are going to have to? Well, to? it's HBO Max, uh, basically getting the Warner Brothers catalog for 2021, uh, which is real interesting for ourselves because you know Godzilla vs Kong is going to be included in that, and we don't get HBO Max over here because of the deal HBO have with Sky, and our options are either to go through the VPN route, which is kind of a legal grey area. Uh, or we have to basically try and find someone that's going to show Kong versus Godzilla. Or is it Godzilla versus Kong? I don't know which way around it is now because they keep changing it. So, hmm. But um, that currently is where all the cinematic gold at the end of the rainbow is. And currently we have no idea where it's going to be in the UK. Are we going to see it in the cinema? Are we going to have, be forced to get creative? I have no idea right now. But... Well, I think, I mean, they, they, they will still be on at the cinema. What they're saying is they're just going to do it on the same day. Now, as you say, we don't have HBO Max here. We won't have HBO Max here because HBO, like you say, have a deal with, with Sky, which is a subscription service here in the UK that actually not that many people in the big scheme of things have. Um, 
and that's not the model that they really play off anyway and i don't think anyone's really worked out pricing models so i'd imagine covid notwithstanding but by april or so next year there will be films at the cinema and i guess it'll be the same as same as it ever was for us um because i'm not convinced that the experiments by disney and and others have been terribly successful really when um mm. the, 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 that pay-per-view stuff just i don't think has has, has gone disney have not warned themselves to anyone with the antics they pulled with mulan to say the least no. Disney's one true advantage at the moment is the original content they're creating has got a lot of people wanting to see it such as Mandalorian and you've got WandaVision which is uh, hitting their their service on the 15th um, mm. and they also did that ja- documentary about Japanese Spider-Man called oh no, or Spider-Man I mean this Disney Disney have got some really strong brands there is the Disney brands yeah which yeah. People, you know, it's got, they, they, which is a fandom in and of itself. Yeah, they're, they've got the Marvel brand. No, not, yeah, yep. it's the Marvel brand. Yeah, they've got the Marvel brand. So they've got the films and the TV shows in that world. They've got um, the Star Wars universe. You know, all, all these things will bring committed fandoms to them. Um, however, have they got anything else? Have they got the breadth of something like a Netflix? Have they got the breadth of something like an Amazon? Well, Amazon Prime's like a rundown library, yeah. isn't it? But <laughs> it's uh, but Netflix. Barely, you barely go. You don't go to Netflix to watch films anymore. You go to Netflix to watch their own branded content, and it's a bit wider, quite a bit wider. Um, you know, and, and they 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 they've Netflix have still got the cachet. I mean, everyone's been watching The Queen's Gambit for some reason different show different podcast but boy have i got things to say about oh, that really? thing but I apparently good, apparently so. i disagree um, well, i like the book <laughs> so um yeah um this is nation cinema podcast i'm not going to go on about it i love anna taylor joy it looks fantastic but my god what a mary sue of a, of a, of a tv <laughs> show anyway the point is that netflix still i think controls the, the wider space um how many people who aren't into marvel into disney into star wars are going to buy um disney plus hbo max which seems to be mutating into some greater beast like you say just doesn't exist outside of america now of course america's the biggest audience for these guys yeah well that and china so yeah, I, I, I don't know, but I will miss, you know, I know I know you're not these days because of, you know, home reasons, you don't go to the cinema a lot, but there will still be a, I'm hoping there is still an, there's still an audience of people that want to go to do the whole cinema experience, to be fleeced for giant watered down <laughs> cola and really expensive popcorn and sit in nice seats while idiots shout around. Yeah, you. I miss... But there is there is there is a good side going to the cinema. Yeah. But I do miss my ten a.m. showings. Think... That's that's such a treat to go to them at ten a.m. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's just it's, it's hard not to look at the the Americans with envious eyes. I mean, this is as I said, HBO Max is going to offer the subscribers all these movies, no additional cost. So they're going to get as I said, because Godzilla versus Kong, they're going to get June, they're going to get. Um, Space Jam. They're going to get Wonder Woman. So it's very hard uh, not to be a little envious. Um, and it's really... Of course, what it, what it, yeah, what it will mean is <coughs> that they are really opening themselves up to piracy. Um, these films will then be available online by the pirates day one, as opposed to three or four months later. Because, yes, you know, this won't be a case of someone having to go in the cinema with a handy cam. People people are able to stream these things, break the encryption within minutes. Um, so that's that's the risk. But the same, you there say is, that, is, but there... the deal that they have is they're basically getting paid a percentage for these for these films. It's not the same as like with the cinema where you go off the amount of tickets you sell. It's a guaranteed amount Indeed. that they have based on the number of subscribers that they they have. But but if you don't have to be a subscriber mm. to watch the film twenty four hours later, that's their problem. Is that um, if, if no one watches it, 
they won't do it again they won't make as much money so that that that'll be that'll be what's interesting what does this do, what does this do to piracy will other of the you know there's only five big film studios now aren't there in the west and will this mean others will go that way as well where they will pick their favorite partner um yeah, it's it's fascinating stuff, and it's fascinating to see what's happening around the rest. It's of the certainly going to be interesting well, to see who teams up Netflix. I think Netflix is still the biggest platform. I mean, obviously mm. Amazon have their platform that has got better within recent years, but still, it's it's still a very second rate pra- platform, especially because of its broken al- algorithm for finally getting anything on there. Um, yeah, I mean, net, 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 Netflix is is the brand it's like hoover it's like google yeah you know when people talk about watching something streaming on tv they still people still talk about netflix as the default so if any of the studios get into bed with netflix which may not happen because obviously netflix have caused a lot of upset in the film industry by putting things up for can and oscars that, that haven't gone to the cinema so it's it's going to be a, a bit of a traitorous well, film studio that that teams up with them, but their platform their platform's unsurpassed. So it's as I say, it's either going to be a studio they're either going to go after entice studios across, or they're going to continue what they've been doing at the moment, which is to entice talent across. Um, David Fincher has just signed <coughs> a new five picture deal with Netflix. We already know Scorsese is doing things with Netflix, and Lynch has talked about doing things with Netflix as as Cronenberg. So they've got suddenly enticing the right people across to do exciting projects for them. And I think in a way they're sort of cutting out the middleman of why do we need a studio to produce something when we can just produce it ourselves. So Indeed. And this and this in some ways harkens back to how Hollywood used to be, yeah? The the the, the big studios owned cinemas. And they owned the means of production all, all the way through. I mean, there wasn't a obviously there wasn't a an aftermarket world um, of, of, of videos and DVDs and and the like, which I guess only really happened in sort of the late seventies. But up to then, they owned they made the films, they owned the cinemas that they were shown in, they some of them owned TV channels that they showed the films on. You know, it's is it is it getting back to that where the 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 concept of the independent shower has, has gone away <coughs> bless me well I guess we would certainly I think 2021 is going to be an interesting one to see and mm-hmm. see how the model changes based on these experiments being carried out by you know HBO Max and etc so um, yeah I'm kind of interested to see how it how it goes in the coming months now so should we go on to our t- viewing Let's 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 talk about what we're here for. Okay, so when uh, tonight's selection is uh, Tokyo Story from 1953, selected by Stephen, um, a film wildly regarded as, as we said at the start of the show, as one of the greatest pieces of Japanese cinema, uh, regularly making the top list of uh, of sites and magazines such as Total Film who voted number 7 in the 100 Greatest Movies of All Time in 2005. Sight and Sound in the 2012 Critics Poll rated it the third and it's also registered on Roger Ebert's Great Movies list and is part of the Criterion Collection of Spy number 217. The film itself has a 100% rating based on 42 critic reviews from Rock to Mars if anything that matters to you doesn't matter to myself but you know there's people out there who do obviously like it and it's also been included in um kimei jimpo's top 200 best japanese films needless to say this is a film which has got universal acclaim from pretty much everyone who sees it and it's often with these films that you have to wonder is it the case of just the art house crowd wanting to all get behind what they see feel people should be seeing and do these films actually still hold up or was it just a lot of you know beard stroking and chin scratching and it's certainly something we found out we set out to find out within this particular episode as both myself and Stephen obviously come from different critical planes Stephen obviously coming from the classy side of things and myself the well should we say not so classy side of uh, things having tended to focus on the cult and obscure side of Asian cinema so it was really interesting to obviously see how this film would play for us both I mean Stephen obviously 
when it comes to Tokyo Story, I mean, is this a film you've seen before, or...? No, it's not. So Ozu, as a director as a whole, is someone I haven't really explored. I'm kind of aware of his work. I've probably seen things, but not really sat down and watched it. Um, I guess Ozu and uh, Kurosawa are probably the two biggies. Um, so this is this is fairly contemporaneous with Seven Samurai, which is the other black and white film we've looked at mm-hmm. here. Um, so so I felt it was time for both myself and the show to come here, as you say. All those all those lists that come out you know, for, for all these magazines and, and newspapers and different different academies always have this one. There's always an Ozu film in there, and it's usually this one. So I thought, let's find out what the fuss is about. Now, I'm yes, I do like art house films, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and you know, and I've brought a few to the show in the past, and so you've brought a few, a couple to the show in the past, like um, Junking Express, um, which I think you know you enjoyed. Um, yep. The, the, when I have written in the past for Eastern Kicks, um, my area of one of my main areas of expertise is slow cinema, um, especially the slow cinema of Thailand rather than rather than than this so I, I i approached it with you know a bit of respect let's let's find out what this is all about um some technical stuff that i was interested in seeing it you know the things that people talk about how ozu does film and i thought i was expecting to at least enjoy it i have to admit mate i came out of it thinking yeah what is all the fuss about Oh really? Yeah, <laughs> I was a bit underwhelmed. Um, wow. Yeah, I know. Right? <laughs> that's, I don't. That's, I don't know what to follow this up with. I mean, this is going to be very interesting. That's me kicked. Discussion that's indeed. Me, that's mean, me kicked out of my party, isn't it? <laughs> I meant to say, the, oh, your 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 fan club or from the Facebook group. I don't know what they're going to make you now. I mean, there be a whole uprising of. It'd be a very quiet civil uprising. I feel. I, I, f- I feel I've just I've just given Peninsula the thumbs up, and I've given a yeah. A, 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 yeah, it was all right to Tokyo's story. Um, I think I think I might have to go into hiding. It's the beginning of the end now, isn't it? After <laughs> the cult of Stephen is dead. <laughs> just so many episodes. Um, yeah, I mean, the film itself is based loosely based on the American film Make Way for Tomorrow from 1937 about a mother and father whose house gets um, repossessed and they're basically trying to find um, which of their children that they can they can set up home with. The While Ozu had never actually seen the film, his screenwriter um, and co-collaborator, uh, Kogo Noda, had actually seen the film and proposed the idea of adapting it um, and instead they ended up kind of reworking the film into the film that we get here as a aging couple travel to Tokyo to visit their grown children uh, only to find them too busy to pay them much attention and instead finding themselves connecting with the widowed daughter-in-law who is essentially the one who sort of treats them with kindness with the film unfolding as their visit in Tokyo continues and they attempt to reconnect with their wayward children um in many ways it's kind of like a continuation of uh where cats in the cradle left off yeah so yeah <laughs> that's just way to out that you went a bit quiet it's like yes the cat steven song cats in the cradle yes very good <laughs> i have my moments um as for myself, I actually did enjoy this. Which is, you know, probably really more surprising here. Probably, I know we haven't just, like, swapped bodies. Yeah, is this a Freaky Friday going on? Yeah, this is a Freaky <laughs> Friday. There is something, something in that... Uh, that drinking session that is now yeah. totally screwed up with the time let, continuum. Let me, let me uh, just, let me just restate my position. Um, I didn't hate it. I thought yeah. it was perfectly good. In fact, it was enjoyable. Yeah, but is this the greatest? Is this one of the ten greatest films of all time? Is this the greatest foreign language film of all time? Is this the greatest Japanese film of all time? Even no. with my background, no. no. This is and not I'm, the greatest I'm, Japanese I, film of all time. And I'm I mean... half expecting it's not even Ozu's best film. And interestingly, at the time of release. 
the Japanese crit- critics shunned it and said this is old fashioned. This is and <laughs> so you compare it to the American, the British, and um, and the American markets who declared it too Japanese. Indeed, when it when they tried to distribute it over here, so. I mean, it is, it is very Japanese. Uh, the, the, there is lots to enjoy about it, right? As a as, as a stu- as a student of film, this must be fantastic because it teaches you all about all kinds of sort of tricks and ways of making a film. And Ozu throws a load of the rules out of the, you know, out of the window and does things very much his own way. Um, and I guess you know we maybe talk about some of that in a bit. Um, but to me, this is a melodrama. It's a—it's not even a kitchen sink melodrama. It's just—it's a story about a couple of old people that find out their kids are a bit disappointing, and um, <laughs> and and it is to be fair. In the sort of the final act is very affecting. I actually sort of—it's one of those films that actually I felt got a lot better. Um, the final act uh, at, at sort of one, one of the I don't know how many can you spoil a film from 1953 I don't think so the um, the, the, the mother the, the mother character the grandmother character dies and so the so so basically all the the grand the, the old couple go to Tokyo find out their kids are really disappointing and then on their way home after something after after trying to visit one of their other children they've got five children two of them live in Tokyo one of them's dead and one of them lives with them and one lives in I want to say Osaka which is on their way home I can't remember where they go but yes the the, the mother character the matriarch of the family passes away and they all go back to the little rural village and, and have a funeral and that was that was much more affecting I thought I just thought a lot of it was just a lot of people talking really formally saying really rubbish things <laughs> um yeah it was i i guess i i really struggled to get engaged with it certainly this is a film which is a uh, slow burn to say the least it's not there is no big action sort of sequences here there's not even any big sort of dramatic sweeps here at all it is just as i said it's a very much a slice of life film kind of like a how ashby movie mm. uh when you look at something like the last detail it's very much the same sort of story that we're getting told here this couple they basically go they ch- see their children and we see the children who are essentially just too busy caught up in their own lives to pay attention really to their aged uh, parents and it really sort of questions this whole attitude uh, between you know the young and the the old with these old values of you where you look after your elders as sort of being overlooked now as these this new generation are essentially looking out for themselves and raising their own families and just not having time for the support of the family units even though this couple they live with uh, one of their daughters Kyoko uh, played by, by uh, Kyoko Kwaga um, who's a primary school teacher and as she said right, I mean they have five adult children four of whom are living because they obviously lost a son in the Pacific um, in the war and it's uh, instead they go and visit his widow and we obviously have the uh, the eldest son who's a physician and uh, the eldest daughter who runs a hairdressing salon and it's in many ways that it feels like the first two hours of this because it's about two and a half hours long this film is it's just about setting these the relations up between these people and then when we the we lose the mother character how suddenly they all have like these feelings that they want to share about um about this this mother that they apparently had no interest in seeing before but as soon as she goes they're like first in like wanting to claim trinkets of uh from her wardrobe and whatnot so yeah 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 that's um horrible that the the character that the sort of the um the oldest sister the one who runs a yes. beauty shop she's repulsive <laughs> she, she's repulsive from bigger that's the, the, one of the one of the one of the sons is a so basically the youngest sister lives at home and she's the primary or she's primary school teacher teacher of some yes, sort yes and you know she obviously cares for the family so she's she's that sort of it's very sort of traditional asian but especially japanese sort of she's basically her life is on hold to care for her parents until they pass away and they're not that old they're only in their mid-60s 
the way sometimes some of the children talk about their parents, you thought they were at 105. Um, well, it, it, they dress in very old They're very, they're, they're very much the previous generation, aren't they? Yeah. yeah, they sit around in like in their uh, in kimonos and and cool themselves with fans. They they they're very detached from the current generation. They they, they live these they very are. sort of old, did old sort of school values that they have for themselves. Um, at the same time, they seem to be willing to show signs that they're able to move with the times, such as they encourage like the widow to move on with her life. They they show no sort of disdain for like how their children sort of turned out in their career paths compared to other sort of parental figures in this film were sort of like dismayed that their children didn't do better um that they're not not perhaps representing the family their families um as well as they should be yeah so we got so we got the we got the teacher woman who's looking after a family okay it's very traditional and then we've got the two in tokyo one is a doctor and one runs, she calls it a beauty salon, I think you and I would call it a hairdresser's. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, and, and and I think they've gone to Tokyo and they want to be proud of them, see what, what their kids have got made of themselves. It's quite clear they might be in Tokyo, but they're in a pretty crappy area of Tokyo. Um, so they're, they're, not, they're not at the top of their game. Um, one of the other sons obviously is a businessman working in another city a bit closer to home and obviously we, you know, one of their sons has died in the war. And there is a, there is a wonderful exchange. So they sort of, they go and visit the kids. The kids kind of push them off. They don't really give much time to their parents. The grandchildren are even worse. <laughs> grandchildren need a slap. Um, <laughs> and uh, only only Noriko, who is obviously played by um, oh, what's her name? Noriko, Noriko, Noriko is played by um, Setsuko Hara, who obviously was the template for Millennium Actress in our last episode, which is why I brought this to brought this to show. Anyway, you know, she she actually takes a day off work to show them around. They send them off to a hot springs, and it's horrible. Although it does have a moment with an accordion. And in another episode of another show that we do, I've now decided um, that we should have a whole show about films with accordions in, because I didn't even know accordions existed in Japan. Anyway, they do all this, they they, they do it, and then they go home, and then they fail to meet their, their other son, and then they go home and die. But every, every all the kids are just... They're not horrible, they're not evil. This isn't Knives Out, yeah? Where they're just people. And they're just doing the best they can. And there's this lovely moment. So when they sort of they, they go to meet their other son, they sort of stop off on the way home, and he's not around. So I think they're in a hotel or something. And they talk about it in a very matter-of-factly. Well, what do you think of our kids then? Well, our daughter's a bit of a shit. <laughs> yeah, I agree. <laughs> and they go, yeah, they're not really as good as they could have been, but they're all right. They could be worse, which must be the most damning thing for a father to tell his child. Obviously, he doesn't tell it to their face, but uh, you could have been worse. Yeah. I mean, it's it's. But I guess at the same time, isn't that all of us? Yeah, not many of us do our children become the greatest at in their field at anything. Most of us are just happy that our kids have survived and that they've got a, they managed to earn a living and they get married and maybe provide you with grandchildren. It's a very it's a very sort of realistic approach to life, but it just doesn't. Yeah, it, it, I just I just felt it was a bit sort of oh well the whole film to me felt a bit like oh well you know we we we're doing okay could be worse very British really isn't it <laughs> it's, a, it's a very British attitude could be worse yeah it's I mean on a technical level this film is absolutely stunningly shot. Mm. And I can see how this film would obviously like pay the way for so many other Japanese directors of of the era and just in the inspiration it seeds. I mean, I can see like elements that um, Ichiro Hoda would use in like when when the scene we see the scenes of like the little fishing village, mm. and I just look at that and I was like, wow, these scenes look very familiar, like with Godzilla. Mm. And I mean, the fact he shoots everything basically on floor level, which means all the sets had to be built with ceilings. Um, yes. And he takes all these very he takes these very unique risks with how he chooses to to shoot the film. 
Um, he breaks a lot of the rules within this. So certainly on a technical standpoint, I mean, it's very interesting to sort of look at. So I'm sure the, the uh, film study students are, and the, yeah. really enjoy these aspects yeah. of it. Yeah, I agree. So there's, there's a couple of things. The one is everything is shot as if you were sitting down um, on the floor. Um, so a lot of people say, well, that's, that's how that's a Japanese perspective because the Japanese people, you know, in, in a, a classical Japanese house wouldn't have chairs. People would sit, sit down on the tatami mats. Um, now I've actually read that that's not his intention at all. And the intention is to take away any sense of depth in the shot. So that, that's kind of interesting. But yes, you've got a very low down. So quite often, you know, if people are sitting down, you're, you're eye level with them, but when they're standing up, you're kind of looking up at them. As, as if you were sitting on the floor. Um, also, did you notice all the squares and rectangles? Every every shot, the camera never moves, but all the framing, everything's sort of done like through doorways or through window frames or through there's there's things to the side which are always framing and closing the the people within the shot. Um, yeah. So there's, there's there's that loads of squares and rectangles. That's what I wrote down in my notes: squares and rectangles everywhere. Mm. And there's also um, when you look at the backgrounds and stuff, there's numerous posters, mm. uh, like in the salon and stuff, of like films and directors who actually in, influenced Ozu. But unfortunately, they're, they're so obscured; it's not like you can make a little watch yeah, list of to, uh, films. I have to say, I've got the BFI DVD of it, and it's awful quality wise i know there's been a remaster of it so i do wonder if some of it i've missed because it looks like a 1954 film rather than one that's been tarted up a bit i don't know there's, there's some really terrible lighting effect not effects but the, the, the lighting codes in there like it would when you watch an old film on tv in the 70s um there's also of course he breaks the, what they call the 180 degree rule which actually, so when you know about it, it it, it makes it makes sense, but it's really quite unsettling because like characters will sort of both instead of like one on the left, one on the right, and the shots would alternate between the two, and you have a conversation. Like people are facing the same direction, and yeah, and did you notice like in the whole thing, quite often three characters will be in the shot and they'll all be looking in the same direction but talking to each other, which is it's probably how people are, yeah. You know, when we all sit down on the sofa, we, you know, we're all sitting looking in the same direction. But in film, in terms of film, the, the 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 language of film, it's really unsettling and really weird. And even though I knew it was coming, because I knew this is one of Ozu's trademarks, I wasn't prepared for quite how weird and unsettling it is sometimes. <laughs> and like people normally in a film, if a character moves from left to right, they would appear in the next shot coming from the left even if it wasn't in the same um even if it wasn't in the same scene you know just just give that that continuity of view but you know you'll leave on the left and you'll come back on the right and it's really quite unsettling but it's not i, I don't quite know why he does it because obviously it, there's not meant to be a sense of unease here this, this isn't a sort of a horror film at all this is it's just it's just interesting and it's a stylistic thing that that he does other people do it kubrick did it sometimes you know that this is thing but this is like you say this is the film studies thing so it's it's, it's about the camera view the camera barely moves um was it, roger, yeah. was it roger ebert said there's one there's one moving camera shot and that's one more than a normal ozu film <laughs> <laughs> but but it looks very kind of stagey but it's not stagey in the sense that it just looks like they're on the stage like a, like just filming a play it's stagey because everything is composed where people are standing and the way you're looking at them and the way their environments enclose them I, I absolutely get it mate i absolutely get it that this is a technical tour de force yeah I mean, also on the writing side of things as well, you have to appreciate the fact that with Ozu, where other directors will want to show you every single moment that happens in these characters' lives, there's large portions of the film where we don't actually see it. It's just explained away in dialogue. Mm. Um, such as the couple when they go to see see their son, um, Kizo. And uh, that's when they go to Osaka. And we never actually see that visit. We don't see the train ride. We don't see anything. We don't even see his wife's illness beginning because that happens all off screen. And it's just really a conversation between the other characters that we find out about the current state of uh, of this couple and, and what's actually happening with them. Um, so it's... 
it's it's a film that really requires you to have a lot of attention with it which isn't the easiest thing when this is a film that's paced the way it is now i know there's obviously people out there who obviously do don't mind films that are like slow paced and certainly the story to an extent is engrossing um but at the same time it, it does require a special sort of effort it's not something that you can put on sort of casually and you've got to sort of make time to sit down and watch this which i think is not the easiest thing to find especially when we have such like busy lives we're not like got time to say oh we're going to sit down and watch ozu movies it's um it's not the easiest sort of it's the easiest sort of director to sort of sit down and find that whereas other directors of note i mean such as like kurosawa and stuff have got that more sort of accessible edge to them where you can sort of like watch them a little more casually it doesn't require you to focus on every minute detail of the of the plotting mm. i mean it, it's um, it, there, there, you know it, this is this is the poster slow cinema is a thing right and you know when we talk about other other movies and i'll bring up another director who's who's made a career out of this it's 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 it you need to you need to be able to pay attention to it. You can't just, um, as you as you rightly say, you can't just put this on in the background and expect to get anything from it. You could, and it would be, you'd have a totally non-invasive experience with it, and it would just light your room. The glow of the TV would just light your room up. And that that's about it. Um, you have to watch it to understand the performances, to understand what's going on technically, even to keep a hang, handle on the story, because. Not much happens in this film, but if you blink no. for a second, you would wonder what was going in bits. Because, as you rightfully say, there are whole sort of scene transitions and elements of plot which are just not shown. And they're explained away in dialogue, sometimes even later dialogue. Um, again, just like life, you don't know everything that's going on in your family. <laughs> you know, People have their lives outside of the film camera, which is you. Um, and and the only way you find you know the only way you find out your aunt went to Bournemouth for the weekend is if she tells you you don't actually see it um, and so there's, it, it, there is there is something kind of interesting in that but yeah you you need to be fully engaged with this and it's, it's I think it's two hours my version there may be you may have a longer version my hours was two hours and ten minutes and to me that was a long two hours and ten minutes where not much happened in. Um, I was watching, yeah, it was the same for myself because I was watching this for the BFI player, mm. um, where it's it's available through their catalogue. We even got Mark Commode does an introduction for it, and he apparently also agrees with the uh, vast majority of you guys out there. The fact that he made it his one hundredth film introduction, um, feeling that a film such an achievement needed a film of note, and this is what he obviously chose to use as uh, as said example of that, and. I just find it interesting it's... because Ozu made lots of films. This is the yeah. third in his Noriko trilogy, which basically tell very similar stories with characters with similar names and a similar cast of um, uh, similar cast. So there's, there's a character in each of the film called Noriko. Um, I think all played by the same actress. Um, so uh, is it late autumn and late spring? Are they part of this trilogy? I can't remember. Um, I just why why is to what makes Tokyo Story? better than all those others that's and i guess i'll only know by exploring the rest of his back catalog um and i don't know how inspired i am by tokyo tokyo story to really make that effort if that makes sense i totally get what you're what you're saying i mean certainly when it came to rating this on a lead box i gave this a four out of five um because i do recognize it as an important as an important work of Japanese cinema, I don't perhaps rate it as highly as every other critic out there. And the reason I didn't give it the full five stars everyone else does is just the pure fact of rewatchability, which is what I rate all my five star films off. It's like a film can be hit all the right notes, but if it's not got that rewatchability, then it can't be really classed as a five star film for myself. Um, that's obviously part of my many sort of quirks, my own sort of rating system. And I just couldn't see myself like sitting down and going, "Oh, I'm going to rewatch Tokyo Story." It just isn't the sort of movie. It's the sort of movie like Lawrence of Arabia. You watch it once, and I'm sort of like, "Yeah, I'm done with this." It's not uh, an experience I need to repeat. I think I got everything on this first experience, and there are probably going to be people out there in the uh, the comments who completely disagree with me and feel that I'm just like not appreciating this film for what it it is. Um, 
and but I, as I said, I just for myself, I felt I got everything I needed to just on this this one one viewing. Um, I will, however, say that uh, it is no way to really <laughs> to treat your beloved mother when to have a line in state and just have a basically a tea towel over her face. Yeah, so, I think I think that's just how they do it. <laughs> if you oh, if that happens to me, I am going to come back and haunt your ass. What I actually that that does remind me. So he has these um I forget what they call them, but there's these they're not really establishing shots, but there 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 are shots. The film has the the sort of the 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 conversational moments, and then they're interspersed with shots of of where they are, sort of like out in the street, or that beautiful shot near the end, out in the um, showing the harbour where that where they're living in the countryside, and you see the train leave, and then you see the boat go off in the other direction, um, and you see the um, the shrine where they've obviously had the the sort of the Japanese style funeral. Some of that is beautiful. Some of those sort of, I'll call them establishing shots. They're not quite, but yeah, some, some of that is, is gorgeous. And the fact that the camera doesn't move around it almost makes them like paintings. So actually what I'm craving is to find a decent remaster of this so I can enjoy some of those shots as well. But yeah, there's there's definitely a little bit more to it than um, than than just people talking in rooms facing in funny directions. <laughs> so you're saying this has got more rewatchability for yourself? I think I think it does. Um, I think it. Um, I I think I would go back if I found a nice 2K 4K remaster of it, um, just to enjoy some of the such uh, just. So some of the some of the shots and some of the compositions um but i will you know i've i've, I've got other ozu movies in my list I've, I've picked them up over the years i i had i had this from the i mean basically every so often the bfi has a sale and there's always a kurosawa <laughs> or ozu film on it and i will pick one of them up amongst other things you know it's quite good for my british film collection and you know every, every they, they do do collections of um London to Brighton train journeys, and they also do Ozu films. So you, <laughs> you just, I just keep an eye on it once a year and, and pick it up. And so I'll, I'll watch other Ozu films. I, I can see the craft. I can absolutely see the craft. My issue is with um, of all the Asian films you and I have ever watched, and all the ones we're going to watch. Yeah, I'm pretty certain neither of us are going to put this in our top ten. No, and I think last time we upset the the Critics Association with our breakdown of their top foreign cinema list, um, there's a lot of titles on there that we didn't understand why they were on there and certainly why they passed over titles that we felt that should have been included there, in particular Battle Royale, a film that we've yeah. both like on repeated... Uh... So obviously, obviously the critics, is, there's a tension, isn't there, between genre filmmaking... Um, whether it's action, whether it's horror, whether it's even comedy films, and um, worthy, you're, you know, not just art house cinema, but there's like serious dramas and things like that, which which fits somewhere else. And and quite often genre film is overlooked. But we talked we talked about this at length. You can go back and just talk about it for three hours in in, a, in one of our other special episodes. But um, yeah, I, I again, I, and I just wonder if there's a better Ozu film. I just wonder if we have this conversation in the year's time, and I've had a chance to go off and have a look at it. Um, that I'll say, yeah, Tokyo Story's all right, but you should really watch Late Spring instead. I, yeah, I don't know. We'll see. It's could be very possible. I mean, obviously, everyone says that you know, Seven Samurai is the classic Kurosawa, but I mean, Yojimbo's just as good. And I love high and low, so you know, you know, which isn't even a period film. You know, it's a, it's, a, it's, it's a contemporary film by him. So, yeah, absolutely. It's time to. Um, sometimes it's easy. It's easy for. It's a self-fulfilling thing. These these lists become self-fulfilling because someone's curated that list, and there are so many films in the world. When you want to go and have a look, oh, what are the ten best Asian uh, Japanese films? Let's go and have a look at this list. And then you only ever see those ten films, which then makes you put them on. That make you know, do you know what I mean? It, it, it's self-fulfilling and self-propagating. Um, yeah, I feel that you know, as 
you know, movie watchers. And I mean, the whole point of this, this project obviously being to explore Asian cinema, not just the cult and the fantastical, but also like the, to make dives into the art house. I mean, this is obviously fills in gaps in my own film watching because you do tend to sort of focus in on your own sort of areas of, uh, of, of just any sort of uh, cinema. You, if you, for example, you're into like horror films, you just tend to watch horror films, and you miss out on a lot of cinema. So, obviously, one of the great things about this project has always been the fact that it's been about exploring, providing this introduction to Asian cinema, and obviously, f essentially pushing myself to watch a lot of stuff that I may not watch otherwise. And certainly, case in point uh, with Ozu here, this is my first Ozu film that I've watched. Um, and I don't think that I would have watched it outside of this this podcast. I think it's sometimes you need that uh, that push to to see what else is out there, just to try something else on the uh, on the buffet line. Indeed, and so I'm I'm really happy that you liked it because I I quite often I I I I I feel a lot of pressure on me and my choices, <laughs> and I, really? I I do I do especially you know. Um, Especially when I pick something a little more art house, a little more maybe classical, um, and I mean, I, you know, I you, 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 you know, you're not a, you're not a monster. <laughs> you're not. A, you, you're there not... would be certainly disagreements on that on the page, <laughs> so. but but um, no, not at all. You know, you've enjoyed some films that I was really surprised, and I'm really, I, I, in a way, we were both coming at this. I ch I chose this film because of what because of Millennium Actress yeah? yeah I thought here's an opportunity to knock an Ozu film off the list um, so I didn't come to it with any particular grudge and this isn't like a you know yeah I, I don't like it when you don't like an Edward Yang film but I have no skin in the game on this one but I was thinking oh it's a bit slow going this I wonder how Edward's going with this um, and, and I think it's and, all about the coherency of it mm. because when we looked at Edward Yang's the Terrorizers, and the fact he wasn't making head nor tail sense sense of it all. So that when you've got something that is very sort of straightforward, like a, like this film, it's um, well, it's obviously perhaps you know out of my wheel, usual wheelhouse of uh, film watching, as we obviously see on you know each episode and the films that I've been watching previously. Um, it's it's you can still obviously appreciate good filmmaking for what it is and you can appreciate a good story for what it is um even if it's perhaps not the sort of style of film that i sort of gravitate towards when we obviously look at edward yang where i have no clue what's supposed to be happening in that film whatsoever um it becomes a little more difficult to be constructive about said work so yeah, that's fair fair enough but yes i'm glad you liked it good Anything else that uh, you want to bring up with this one? No, I don't think so. I'll be really interested in what people have to say on the on the website, on the on the Facebook page. Um, I've got a feeling I know a couple of people who will be big uh, big promoters of this <laughs> and big it up. Um, I think David Brooks is a fan, mm. so I need to. I should really. We should send him a a message and say, "Oh, we watched Tokyo Story." Yeah, and just just leave it out there in the open air, just like not say what we thought of it, and to see what he what he says. Because I'm feeling that he's he likes Ozu movies, so I'm sure. Yeah, knowing knowing David, he almost certainly does. And um, yeah, I, I mean, I think I think yeah, I'm not going to keep belaboring the point. I didn't not like this. I appreciate the craft. I appreciate the film. It's just. I was expecting more, and for me, you know, what did you get? You gave it a four out of five on Letterbox. I don't normally. I gave it a four out of five. Yeah, yeah. I don't normally go in for this kind of thing. So I, 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 I'd have three point seven five. You know, we've see. I don't bother the. We've, uh, we've seen a, yeah, we've, well, we've seen a lot worse, but I, oh, I yeah. honestly know we've seen better. Yeah, and and that rewatchability that is key to me as well. Yeah, is it a film I'm going to say? Oh. Oh, I've got a hangover. Well, I won't have a hangover because I don't drink. But no, I don't feel very well today. I don't feel like moving off the couch. I'm going to stick a movie on. I ain't going to stick this one on. Is it, you just uh, when I look at the other films we list, it's sort of like you know, do I watch this or do I watch a moment of romance? Mm. I was like, well, obviously I'm going to watch a moment of romance. Indeed, because um, it's it's that got that rewatchability factor to it, and 
with this one it just feels a lot of you you really got to be in it to ready to to watch cinema mm. and what um, what i will do now though is that i feel educated i feel educated because okay. i've i've read a lot about the 180 degree rule and things like that and to see it broken I, I've, I've i've had a hard time understanding that rule in the in the round you know just reading about it so now seeing it broken i get it i get and i've seen mm. you know i've seen little clips of the films before but seeing it as a film as a whole now i feel educated now i feel i'll be able to spot it in other films and you know we'll be able to tell that was very ozu like wasn't it because people say stuff like that and i've never really known <laughs> what it meant <laughs> what people well, <laughs> i want to know says things like that critics so. and, the, and the like yeah they're, they're, talking about the... they'll invoke they'll invoke things like uh, names like ozu to say oh it's like it's like one of or kurosawa now we know kurosawa so, we've seen a lot of the, his films between us um and now we're a little more educated about uh, the other sort of grandmaster of Japanese cinema. Yeah, those critics who cluck their tongs and stroke their beards and look down on Elwood Jones of his <laughs> his disrespect for the Japanese masters. Indeed. <coughs> but uh, you know, we were, as I said, we uh, we like to to branch out here and not just you know cover the same sort of things. And I think that's only what we've we've done tonight. I mean, yes, we perhaps not have appreciated as much as of critics out there, but as we always uh, like to say, criticism is just somebody else's opinion. It's just they've chosen to write it down and hopefully in a financially gaining way. <laughs> um, that is basically what film criticism is. So. I'm sorry to demystify what film criticism is to people out there, but no, it basically when we say like it's a critic's top ten list, it's basically you know this people have chosen that's their opinion on it, and it's not gospel. And I think uh, while I can certainly see the merits of this film, it's not. I would not rate it as certainly in the same high regard that uh, that uh, other critics out there would. So, but uh, yeah. That was an experience. Well, that brings us to the end of another edition of the Asian Cinema Film Club. Thank you as always for listening. If you haven't done already, please do hit the like and subscribe button and wherever you happen to be listening to us. And maybe leave a review as it all helps raise the profile of the show. You can follow us both on Facebook and Instagram. And you can check out our full archive of episodes over on the Asian Cinema Film Club .com. And you can also check out our bonus show, the Battle Royale podcast, where we are currently breaking down the classic Battle Royale one DVD chapter at a time and uh, that you can find both on the main feed for this show or you can also find it by looking at Battle Royale podcast as well so whatever works better for your podcasting needs really um, next episode is going to be my turn to pick and Stephen we're going to be looking at a film which I brought up in our original top 50 and I remember you being excited to to see it mm -hmm. and I don't think you've seen it in the meantime so I'm going to expose you to it now and we're going to look at Fish Story okay um, which as I said it's a film I included in my original top 50 Asian cinema it's a genre hopping experience to say the least as we find out whether punk rock can save the world but that, that's to obviously come up on our next uh, episode so hopefully you can join us for that um, but thank you as always for listening again um, thank you to my co-host Stephen pleasure as always and uh, we'll be back next time to talk about Fish Story until then, good night. Hey! 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 Kinonoko,今日はわすれて。昨日のあの子はわすれて。踊り続けていたい。夜なのさ。
This podcast is a proud member of the Lamb Podcasting Network. Find the network at largeassmovieblogs.com.